Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. And I feel like for the first time, probably in my life, I have complete control over where I'm spending time and why, who I'm investing in and why, and how open I'm letting myself be to new people and new experiences and and learning from them. Whereas if I had just lived in one city or a few cities my whole life, a lot of that would be based off of circumstance. And so this life for me just shows so much like proactiveness about pushing your limits and pushing your boundaries and learning about yourself and cultivating self-awareness. And a lot of that comes from the mirrors of the people and places you choose to be around. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles, and my guest today is Allie Green. She is an expert in organizational behavior, human resources, and people operations. For the last decade, her passion and focus has been on the future of work as more companies are opting for non-traditional work environments. She has consulted on people ops for companies ranging in size from early stage startups to 200 plus employees. She's currently the director of people ops at DuckDuckGo, where she oversees the overall employee experience and is responsible for intentionally crafting how business and operational decisions impact the company culture as an internationally distributed company. At DuckDuckGo, she implemented a new hiring process strategy that helped the company grow over 80% in two years with a focus on gender diversity. She has also been a digital nomad since 2016 and has been to 30 different countries. She is passionate about learning through travel and the impact of remote work on nomadic communities, personal relationships, Relationships, communities, and society at large. On a personal level, she is obsessed with seeing street art around the world. She helped paint a mural in South Philadelphia, and she was once a member of an axe-throwing league. Ali G, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome to be here with you. Let's set the scene for people. You and I are currently in Nairobi, Kenya, and we are drinking a bottle of Pinotage 
from Stellenbosch in South Africa. Yeah, well, if you're going to be in Africa and drinking wine, it better be from South Africa. Indeed, the preeminent wine region of the continent, for sure. And Stellenbosch, uh, the reputation precedes that particular region. And this is a particularly nice pinotage. I feel like this is the best one we've had. Yeah, I think we pause for a sip now, right? Yeah, I think we pause for a sip. Or I'll talk and you take a sip. And then while you're talking, I'll take a sip. So cheers. Uh, cheers to you. <laughs> Um, so you and I have been here in Nairobi for a month, um, which has been totally amazing. It's my first time. I've been to South Africa and I've been to North Africa, but this is literally my first time in between. And we have been on safaris and it, it's just been, uh, for me, a really special month. Yeah, it's been awesome to be here. I think one of the things about traveling and working remotely is sometimes even though you've seen so many places, it's nice to get out of your comfort zone. And I am one that shies away from big cities and Nairobi is the biggest city you can get in Kenya. And so coming here, thinking I would hate it and then really turning my opinion around in a month and sad to be leaving this weekend has been incredible. And part of the reason I like to travel is just I'm constantly surprised and constantly learning things about my likes and dislikes. It's been really amazing. I have been really touched and moved by a lot of the people that I've met here and the interactions that I've had here. And it's just been incredible, not to mention just the connection with animals and nature, which for me, you know, going, we went on a safari to Maasai Mara, um, which is one of the preeminent places to do a safari anywhere in Africa. And it was for me just a really special experience. I'd never done a safari before. So it was my first time being that close to those kind of animals in the wild and just literally seeing from the porch of our bungalow elephants, wild elephants just roll up and just start eating branches off the trees, like right from the porch of our bungalow. That was unbelievable to me. They were upset they weren't invited to our dinner. <laughs> I guess they were, um, but totally amazing. And then seeing the lions and then the, you know, buffalo and all of that kind of stuff was just, was just a really special thing. So all in all, an amazing month for sure. Now you and I also though, just to contextualize for people, we've known each other for probably a little over six months now. We initially met in Da Nang, Vietnam early in the year. Yeah, that was a pretty cool experience too because I remember thinking when we were meeting up again here in Nairobi that we probably only had about like three deep conversations in the month that we were in Vietnam together. And so this month just looping back up is one of the awesome things about nomad communities. It's been amazing. And I know you found out about this because uh, you were in Da Nang and you were like, what are you doing for the rest of the year? I was like, I was going to, I'm going to Nairobi, Kenya. And uh, you were like, uh, really? Can I get the details on that? Yeah. Thanks for letting me tag along. <laughs> but again, one of the really cool things about uh, world travel and meeting people and uh, all that good stuff. So, um, so amazing. So let's start uh, with your story. I want to, I got to begin with this axe throwing thing. Tell me what an axe throwing league is, where that came about, and maybe start a little bit about kind of, you know, where you grew up and, and then how you got involved in this thing. Yeah. So my involvement in joining an axe throwing league, I think is really symbolic of just my life in general. So when I first started out being nomadic, I started to test the waters of time inside and outside of the U.S. So I would go and I would have these amazing travel experiences, six months of the year, and then I would move back to Philadelphia, which is where I was based the last time I had a proper lease or a home anywhere. 
But I found pretty quickly returning back to my normal life left me very uninspired. So there are a few things that I did to keep like the momentum of fun and excitement an adventure that happens when you're traveling in my stable environment. One was dyeing my hair. So I've had like crazy hair colors, blue, pink, purple, etc. Um, and the other was every time I would return to the United States, I picked up a new hobby. Um, if I could one day in the future, I'd, I'd love to consider myself a professional hobbyist and just live a life of leisure and just always be diving into weird, cool new things. And axe throwing just happened to be one of the things when I was going back for a summer in Philadelphia that, you know, came onto my radar and I was part of the inaugural league. There had never been a league in axe throwing in Philadelphia before. And I was like, well, if I can be the first person to do this and this thing's super weird, then of course I want to do it. Um, and basically, it's like darts, but with an axe. <laughs> so, so how does it how does it work? Like you have uh, like a target, like an archery type situation, but you're wielding axes and throwing the axes at the target. Yeah. So there's two size axes. You have your basic hatchet, and that's what you do for normal play. And there's targets similar to archery or darts, where the closer you are to the bullseye, the more points you get. Um, in axe throwing, there's also uh, targets kind of off to the side that are harder to hit and more points. So that was my game was always trying to get those hard to hit, uh, bullseyes instead of the, the regular ones. And so you play with a hatchet, two handed overhead, uh, swing and throw. And in the case of a tiebreaker, they bring out the full ax, long handle, really heavy. And it's still over the head, Maybe this time close your eyes and hope for the best and throw. Um, but it's pretty fun. And it's definitely like a cool, interesting hobby to, to have learned. That is amazing. Um, so, all right. So can you talk a little bit about how you decided to get into the digital nomad lifestyle and maybe a little bit about kind of your background upbringing and then like what sort of led you to make that decision for you? Yeah. Um, so not to be too like therapy session on everybody here, but the more that I travel, the more I pinpoint the origin story of me being nomadic to my middle school years. So I was born in Michigan and grew up in South Florida. And when I was in South Florida, I actually ended up going to four different middle schools in the span of three years. Uh, the reason for this was, one, because of how public schools are structured there, um, where you have elementary school kind of in some cases up to grade four, and then for some cases it only it goes up to grade five or six, so it really varies there. So I went to three different schools while I was in Florida. One of them was a math and science school, then I went to a normal public school, and halfway through my eighth grade year... Uh, in the winter, my parents were like, oh, hey, we're going to move back to Michigan now. Um, so that was that was middle school number four. And it's one of those things where looking back, you realize that that led me to believe that change was always going to be a constant in my life. And the new situations and the new surroundings and learning how to be adaptable was something that I had to learn by doing in really formative years of my life. And I didn't quite notice the trend there until after university. And once I graduated, I did this thing where I thought I was going to be like really successful and live this glamorous life. So of course I moved to New York City. But 
I was getting paid in bagels in an internship and I couldn't afford an apartment anywhere. So I was just sublet hopping around town and like not putting down roots in any one apartment. And that turned into a year of life in New York. And then I moved to DC for another job opportunity. And that was the first time in my adult life and probably my life anytime when I consciously tried to make the decision to put down roots and I decorated this apartment and it had like this nice exposed brick wall and like a kitchen that I would pretend was like a TV studio kitchen. And it felt really like adult and baller. And I lived there for a year and a half in that apartment and then was like, oh, wait, this is this what I want? I don't know if this is what I want. So another year and a half later, I moved, uh, sold all my Ikea furniture, moved back to New York, rebought a bunch of furniture and was like, nope, this is the place. This is the place I'm going to put down roots. I swear between my life in DC, New York, and Philadelphia, I've put together and then sold the same Ikea dresser three times. <laughs> and it got to this point where like, if you keep making, if you keep doing the same thing and expect different results, then maybe you're crazy. And so I had to take a deep look at myself and be like, maybe you aren't supposed to live this traditional life. Maybe living this life is crazy for you. You've never tried not having a place and not putting down roots and not building that Ikea dresser. And that's when I decided that maybe a nomadic life was for me. You know, it's really interesting that you say that because I as well moved around a bit growing up. And so a lot of times when people are like, where are you from? That's always a tough question for me to answer because I've never lived anywhere in my entire life for longer than seven years. It's my longest stretch. And so I just pick one of the seven year spots. I usually pick the last spot that I lived for seven years, which was LA. And I say LA, but I also lived in DC for seven years and went to grad school there and had an amazing experience there. And I also went to middle school and high school in Buffalo, New York. And I lived there for seven years and had a great experience there. So I have a lot of different connections and different roots. And I agree with you that I think moving around growing up and developing those skills, as hard as they sometimes seem at the time when you're like a kid and like you don't want to leave your friends and you have this sort of stability, but kind of being forced by forces more powerful than you, like your parents' job change or whatever, and going to a new place and realizing that, you know what, there's also cool people here. And I personally have the skills to make friends and to establish myself here and to develop, you know, a nice experience, which is different from my old experience. Um, but it's, it's different in really cool ways. And so when you develop, I think that confidence growing up like that, I think gives you also a little bit more, um, you know, confidence to be able to travel and to know that you can go to new places and experience new things and you're going to be okay and you're going to figure it out and you can make new friends and all that kind of stuff. So I have a similar experience and a number of people that I've talked to, you know, who are nomading also kind of thing, you know, moved around a lot. So I agree. I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. It's funny too. Sometimes I, I try to have this internal argument with myself about why people nomad and it's this nature versus nurture argument. So I know for me, Definitely moving around that much and changing uh, my environment and situations played a role in this. But now that I've been doing it for a few years, I get a question a lot from people that are, what do you love about traveling or how exciting is it that you travel? And sometimes I sit back and I'm like, well, I don't know if I actually love it or that it's exciting, but 
one thing I do know 100% for sure is that it feels really natural to me. And if you think about like, not to be like, you know, I, I have no degree in science, but human evolution, there were groups of people that lived nomadic lives that found food and shelter. And there were groups of people that put down roots and built communities. And I wonder how much of that transcends, you know, to 2018 now that we have technology in place to let us live this lifestyle that might be more natural for some humans. And actually, maybe you could talk a little bit about that because one of the things that is amazing to me to think on, I left the U.S. and began nomading full-time in 2013. And in 2013, when I began doing that, I was thinking to myself, oh my goodness, how amazing it is that we have Airbnb because Airbnb allows me to go think about any place in the world, any country, any city in the world, and book a nice apartment for exactly the number of days that I want. And it can be for a couple months or whatever. Now, prior to that, you'd either have to get a hotel or you'd have to go around with like a real estate broker and find an apartment, right? And a short-term furnished apartment, good luck in some cities doing that or whatever. And so I was like, wow, Airbnb is here, Uber is here. You know, I can get around cities, I can fly around, I can have places to stay. Like, isn't this amazing? 10 years ago, you'd never be able to travel this way. And then lo and behold, since 2013, the evolution of the nomad ecosystem between then and now has just been this extraordinary proliferation of companies coming into the space and trying to cater to the evolution of this lifestyle. So I know that you are really immersed in a lot of the different options and you know lifestyle infrastructure choices that are out there for nomads. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Um, we could start off with that here for people that are Either they're thinking about the lifestyle and thinking about getting into it, or maybe people that are already there. Um, what does that look like? What are the choices for people that want to travel and you know work while they're traveling and have this be kind of a longer term lifestyle choice? Yeah. Um, so I think the the evolution of the different communities that exist is really a case of nothing is actually new. Things are just new again. And so what technology has enabled for this lifestyle is to find different outlets more easily that will help set you up for success. So if you need community and you have this like need for affiliation with others, previous that could be pretty isolating going to a new city um, forget about digital nomadism for a second, but just like moving to a new city or traveling to a new city, like how did you interact with the people in the community there? And then you have things like meetup.com and Facebook groups and, and things like that that connect you at a social level. And I think those are still great outlets to tap into as a digital nomad. But then, as you said, there's now, I don't know if it's a movement or a culture or a community or an industry, but all these things that are now supporting people specifically that are dedicated to working while traveling. And that's quite different than other groups of persistent travelers, backpackers. I'll use as an example, because I did backpack for quite a bit of my life in my 20s um, while I wasn't working. And now I've experienced this life while working. And so when I first started out, I only knew that like backpacker community social aspects in life are very important to me. So when I first started doing 
my digital nomad life, I would seek out hostels that had private rooms. And I felt like that would be the best of both worlds because I could go to sleep early if I knew I had to wake up for a work call the next day. I had enough privacy to focus on my job, but I still tapped into this social environment. The problem I found there is the culture is a little bit different. Uh, when you're when you're joining a hostel, you're meeting people that don't have necessarily the same level of responsibilities you do, and there'll be all this temptation for really fun things going on, or people will be more fluid in, in and out of the hostel. And that was my first year nomading. Over the past three years, I've seen the landscape of this totally change. So I've stayed in co-living places, which uh, someone recently told me they think is just a term for working from home in an apartment with roommates, which is like true, but it's so much more than that because it's about being really intentional about connecting people that share similar life values and also similar flexibility in their work and creating an environment that of course, yes, has like the best Wi-Fi available to you in a city um, and a place to sleep and shower, et cetera, like your, your basic life amenities. But what I think is really special about these co-living places is that it's connecting people to each other in a social way, but also connecting people to each other to support the goals of whatever it is they're working on, whether it's through mastermind sessions or skill sharing. And just the amount of learning you can do as a human while staying in these places is beneficial for you and whatever type of work or business you're trying to grow. And so those places are really special to me. And what I love about them is that you start to see people return back. And so the community grows and networks and you're meeting people that have been there three, four times and you've been there three or four times and maybe your paths have crossed and maybe they haven't, but you all start to know each other in a digital way than in a, in real life way. And then the people that, that run these spaces are usually like tapped into the local community. So you get the benefit of both worlds. You get to travel and you get all this newness, but you also get local expertise. That's awesome. And you're going back to your, one of your favorite ones next month, right? Do you want to talk about where that is and why you love it? Yeah. So I'm going back to a place called Sun and Co in Javier, Spain um, for their third anniversary. I'll be there in two weeks. Um, and what I really love about them is First of all, it's like in a place in Spain that you would not necessarily choose to go to. Um, it's not Madrid. It's not Barcelona. It's this really cute, charming town uh, about two hours away from Valencia on the coast. They have farmer's markets on Tuesdays where I've stumbled through my terrible Spanish to order cheese and olives. Um, and it, you just get to be like immersed in like Spain. Um, there's nothing, I mean, I'm obsessed with the, the town, but there's, from what I can tell, nothing too special about it. The weather's great. It's right by the ocean. There's good hiking. There's enough restaurants where you can get out of the house. But what's really special about it is the way that the the leaders of that community engage people to have a more meaningful connection right from the get-go. So the first thing you do in that environment is have a family meeting where everyone talks about both professionally and personally what they're hoping to get out of their experience there. And as a community, you decide how you're going to support each other throughout a week, whether it's um, encouraging people to wake up early for a morning hike and then you know having coffee and watching the sunrise or teaching people. And this is something I've I did last time I stayed there is I did a lunch and learn session on productivity and time management. And so you get really, again, just all this support holistically in your life. 
um, where when you're not traveling and working remotely, you get it in a very fragmented way. So you get this social support and emotional support. You get professional uh, coaching and informal growth through others. So it's just a really cool experience to be a part of. And and I think it's great for people both that have never traveled and worked before because you can watch other people do it and you have sort of a formal structure and all the logistics are taken care of for you. I personally love logistics. So like that's not the, the motivation for me to go there. And I've been doing this now for three years and I've traveled alone. I've traveled with groups. I've gone to co-living places. And for me, the most special thing is just having this outlet to constantly learn from others and create deep, hopefully long-lasting connections with other people in what could be considered a very transient type of life. Yeah. And I think there's a couple different formats too for the establishment of community in terms of the nomading. So one is these sort of fixed co-living places, which as you said, like people can return there um, and they can stay for as long as they want. And sometimes people will stay for extended periods or they'll come back a number of times as you have with Sun & Co, for example. And then the other kind of major model that's out there now, which you and I have also experienced um, together, which is actually what we're doing now, is these companies that have set up basically these sort of roving communities where you can actually move from city to city, country to country, continent to continent with the same community of people over a period of time. And so you're retaining the consistency of community and of the ability to build those relationships and stay with the same people, but you're actually moving and roving as a community. And the companies that sponsor uh, these types of experiences are setting up the accommodations and the co-working space access. So you have, you know, the ability to work in an office with, you know, 24-7 access and Wi-Fi and everything else um, in these different places. And you're able to go to to experience different places instead of staying in one place. And so, you know, we mentioned that you and I met in Vietnam and that was on a program called Hacker Paradise, um, which is is that, you know, uses that model. And we're now in Nairobi with a company called Wanderers to Life, which also uses that model. They're in a single place for, depending on which of their programs you use, Wanderers Life is in a single place for anywhere from one month to three months at a time. And then they go to another place, Hacker Paradise. They're usually in one place for about six weeks at a time. And then they go to another place and you can go to a lot of these programs for, you know, a shorter period, you know, like a month, or you can buy a three, six, nine, 12 month package with them and go for a more extended period of time. So there's a lot of different options, I think, in terms of lifestyle structure and, you know, that different people can customize to what their preferences are. Yeah. And I love that because you really are seeing different people have different travel styles. One of the things that kind of shocked me about this life when I first started out and looking back, it was pretty naive, but I just assumed that everybody that was as passionate as I am about traveling and working remotely and living this life would then have all the same like values and interests that I have. And what I've learned, obviously, is that like everybody's human and everybody's different. And so what's really cool about the growth of this type of lifestyle is there are so many ways to get support that can match your different needs. And you'll start learning about how certain nomads are different than others, both in their value system needs and interests. And I think you and I are a little bit of an example of this. So I've, I think you proactively seek out 
as many of these communities as possible and you really go through these experiences and and dive in wholeheartedly and for me uh that's not really my approach um my approach is i really like to to strike up not having consistency um, and so I like to weave in and out of programs that are more formalized, like the ones you mentioned, where I can go to a place I would never have considered going to alone and immediately have this support system and be able to really push outside my comfort zone, like what I'm doing in Nairobi and also in Vietnam. And then I like to retreat and take some time alone and just really focus deeply on my work and check in with myself and create space to just be alone. Um, And then informally, what's been awesome now about being a digital nomad and going through programs like this and, and living in cities alone is informally, I now have like real life friends that are digital nomad friends where I create my own meetups and there's levels of informality and formality in the ones that I create for myself and my friends to make sure that even though I'm from a different country than someone, or even though I only met someone briefly through a travel program, if I want to invest in them as a person and build our relationship, that there's outlets to do that throughout a given year. Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of um, what you did in Serbia and what you're going to do in Mexico City and just sort of some of the details about these initiatives that you're involved with? Yeah. So the initiative I, I led with a few friends in Serbia came out of kind of like one of those classic funny stories where I was celebrating Christmas in Finland in this like snowy cabin, except global warming, there wasn't that much snow, but like for, for the sake of the story, it was snowing a lot. Cause I think that sounds more scenic and, and festive, <laughs> um, but a friend, a friend and I decided every day we were going to go for a walk. And this is one of those friends where we would just have these intense conversations that would turn into these like hypothetical stories and games. And we played a version of if you were stuck on an island with someone, like who would you want to be stuck on an island with? And we talked about all the people we had in common, which was a pretty small list because we had just met a few months before. And through that conversation, we were like, wait, we actually would love to be not stuck, but choose to be in a place with these people again. Um, And like, can we do that? What would that look like if we organized something or at least became a catalyst for people to get together, would they want to? And so what started off as just sort of, you know, a a joke turned into, wait, these people are really interesting. They have a lot of great things to say. We share similar perspectives on some topics, but completely disagree on others. And how cool would it be to spend time with them and really dig into topics that we feel passionate about? Because While I love that digital nomads are really free-spirited and adventurous and they're the first people I think that will raise their hand and be like, I'm in for like karaoke or cliff diving or like partying or just like anything cool because like digital nomads are cool people um sometimes what you miss is like sitting on your sofa with a glass of wine and having like a really geeked out conversation about societal norms or have like a really interesting conversation on like the dynamics of relationships in life um and so we decided to invite a few friends and friends of friends to get together specifically 
to have deep and meaningful conversations on a regular basis while co-working and living in the same city. Um, so that's what we did in Serbia. We had about 12 people come and we're going to do another sort of informal gathering of friends and friends of friends that just want to like have really interesting conversations over the course of a month. Um, maybe we'll also cliff dive or something, but probably not. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's amazing about you know the way that you can curate intentional communities to have meaningful experiences with select communities of people, right? Like that I think is amazing because as you travel around and you connect with all these people, there's, you know, there's different types of, of peripheral similarities that you all have. Like you all are making a choice to be in this place, in this context, in the same, you know, program or whatever it is for the same period of time. So there's some commonality that made led you all to the decision. But within that group, you know, there's a lot of diversity usually um, of people, different types of people and all that kind of stuff. So then to be able to curate specific niche intentional communities that want to come together to connect on a specific level. And since you're all nomads anyways, you're like, let's go pick a cool epic location and like, you know, factor in some cool experiences, but then also like have these deep, you know, uh, connections and discussions about these other things. I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And for me, it's, there's a time and place for everything. Like, I don't think I could have that level of conversation every day, I think my brain would explode. Sometimes I really do just want to like let loose and test my uh, vocal range in karaoke, which I know you will not appreciate as much. Um, or like go for a hike or, you know, go go wine tasting in, in Cape Town. So I, I think what I also love just about this lifestyle is the diversity of people you meet, but also the diversity of experiences you can choose for yourself. And I feel like for the first time, probably in my life, I have complete control over where I'm spending time and why, who I'm investing in and why, and how open I'm letting myself be to new people and new experiences and, and learning from them. Whereas if I had just lived in one city or a few cities my whole life, a lot of that would be based off of circumstance. And so this life for me just shows so much like proactiveness about pushing your limits and pushing your boundaries and learning about yourself and cultivating self-awareness. And a lot of that comes from the mirrors of the people and places you choose to be around. Totally agreed. And the ability to control that, as you said, is really the key, right? Giving yourself the empowering yourself with the options to choose location independence, where you go, but then specifically the types of people that you spend time around um, and the type of environment that you create for yourself and what you're doing with your spare time in addition to your work time and how you're doing that and choosing places where you can you know, really engage in things that are meaningful to you outside of work and then to engage in people. That's that's kind of amazing, right? I mean, that's one of the, the aspects of digital nomadism and the ability to control your own environment that is really extraordinary. It's not just place, it's also people and it's also experience. Yeah, I think 100%. Having control over your own life, I think is what most people strive to and I do recognize that you know there is some some privilege in being able to have that control through the means of digital nomad life, but I think that it just really speaks to human motivation and happiness and if you're the person that's in control of the surroundings you put yourself in and you're unhappy, then you have the control to 
change it as well. Um, and I just think that's really powerful in terms of holistically, not just professional, not just personal, but holistically how you choose to live your life is every decision you make is a proactive, intentional decision. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about what you enjoy doing and as you select the places that you go um, and maybe talk a little bit about how you structure your lifestyle right now. Like over the last couple of years in your digital nomad lifestyle, how have you chosen to structure your travel? How fast or slow do you travel? How do you choose your locations? Yeah, those are really good questions. Uh, this is something I've been really interested in lately because I... I like to take check on myself every few months and start to create space for more self-awareness. And it had been a while and someone asked me this question and I didn't have an answer. So then I started asking all my friends and I have a friend who chooses locations based off of movies and books that are really inspiring to her. And I just think that's like pretty awesome. Um, and then I realized for me, I had been choosing places, I think based around people more often than I thought, which was really eye-opening to me. And why I'm glad I made this realization is because digital nomadism is such an independent lifestyle to know that my decisions were based off of when I needed or time to spend with people and when I needed time alone to recharge was an interesting thing to learn about. So definitely I like to keep myself open when I'm traveling. If I meet really amazing people that I want to spend time with, I want to leave my schedule open enough to, to spend time with those people in different places. And that's something that I've done over the past year is, you know, I, I see the same people now every few months and that feels really good. And it feels like we're starting to develop very deep friendships. Um, and I also, and this is something I had to get over to a little bit. Like I, when I thought, oh, I'm going to live this digital nomad life. For me, it also meant like not going back home that often. But also I choose to go back to the United States when there's something really meaningful going on in somebody else's life. And I want to show up and be there for them. So I'm going home in a few weeks home to the U.S. Um, because a, a good friend of mine's getting married. My nephew's five and wants to dress up for Halloween. So again, it's like, for me, this lifestyle is all about being able to invest in people. Outside of that, I tend to uh, travel a lot slower now than I did the first year I traveled. My preference would be to stay in one place for about three months, um, although giving myself an easy out if needed. And I tend to skew more towards um, smaller cities or bigger towns, things with access to my hobbies and interests. So I'll only want to be in a big city if their street art's awesome. Uh, other than that, I need to be by water and hiking and bike riding and opportunities to get away from my laptop and get away from work and like be in fresh air to like detox. Let's use that to talk a little bit about our shared passion for street art. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it is that you love about street art, why you're so passionate about it, and share a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's so many things I love about street art. I think at its core, it's evolution as this like alternative breaking the rules, sort of I do what I want to show my independence culture. 
is something that really speaks to me. Um, the only time I've ever gotten in trouble in my life, I remember like this is the, I love this story. I was in high school and we weren't allowed to drink juice boxes in the hallway because the high school was fancy and there was nice carpet. And I was like a straight A student. I was really involved in my high school. I worked at our school store. I took AP classes. Like I was a good kid. Like I was the good, like innocent kid. I followed all of the rules. And I remember one day I was going from like my independent study hour to another class and I was really thirsty and I was drinking an orange juice in the hallway. And the principal comes up and he's like, you weren't allowed to drink this juice in the hallway. And I just kind of sat there and it was like, I'm being respectful of the school. In my mind at the time, I was an adult. Like I'm not going to spill it. Um, I'm just trying to get from one class to another and like drink something. I was thirsty. And so I go and I throw it away and I was like, okay, no problem. Like I need to get to class now. And I thought that was going to be the end of the story. And the, the principal was like, you can't just throw it away. Like you broke a rule, like you need like detention or something. So I got sent to the principal's office and I was like, this is like so silly. There's people cutting class. There's people doing like other things that I won't mention that like go on when you're a teenager and I'm just drinking a juice box. And they like tying this back to why I like street art. It was like, there was this establishment and this rule that I didn't believe was right. And I just wanted to like express myself and take care of myself. And what I love about street art is this thing that started out to be really rebellious has blossomed into this really beautiful thing that's actually helping communities. So these people that used to be seen as like the trash of communities because they're tagging and graffitiing the wall are people that are just finding ways to express themselves and to share passion around an art form that's really beautiful and really difficult to create. And all these intricacies of how you get recognition and respect as a street artist up to the point where now corporations and government are paying people to make these beautiful murals on something that used to get people in trouble is something I really identify with because I think that if you're breaking a rule for the better good, then you should break that rule sometimes. And like if you're turning a place that used to be dangerous and dirty and scary and you're putting up beautiful things for people to look at not only are you transforming physical space but you're transforming how the community interacts with each other there and you're bringing accessible art to everybody and I just get really excited about that can you talk about our first street art experience together in Vietnam? I can. So this is like one of my favorite days in Vietnam. Um, so there is a town maybe two hours away from, from Da Nang where we were living that literally used to have nothing. It was a fishing village and it got overshadowed quite quickly by other small towns in the area Hoi An to, to be um, very specific that was getting a lot of attention in tourism. And so this fishing village didn't really have anything to connect to the community with each other and also just to like bring in other eyes and visitors to the outskirts of what was starting to become a really tourist-driven destination. And so they created a partnership um, 
actually, I don't know if this is true, but I think South Korea, an- another Asian country, they created a partnership with them and brought in artists to create murals all throughout this small fishing village to beautify it and to make it a place where despite your poverty level, despite the change of the other cities around you to stake a claim that they had something beautiful to show and that art belonged to everybody. And so we took a two-hour cab ride to get there. I think we only spent maybe an hour walking around. I have probably 150 pictures of just these amazing, beautiful, and different artistic styles of, of murals in this town that otherwise would have no reason to bring two Americans to and just tapping into that community and going to a restaurant afterwards and just like waiting for things to show up and eating them and trying to communicate with the owners like that for me is like what travel's all about is like putting yourself in these situations where you're problem solving and you're seeing something new and you're off the beaten path and you're connecting with people even if you don't speak the same language yeah it's interesting I mean, the, the, the history, and you kind of alluded a little bit to the origin of street art and the graffiti movement. And, you know, I resonate a lot with it as well, because graffiti art was one of the four pillars of hip hop culture, right, which initially emanated out of the South Bronx as part of that movement. And it was certainly illicit. I mean, that was a fundamental nature of graffiti, right? Um, was that it was not legal. It was not authorized. And one of the ways that that evolved that I actually appreciate is the ongoing nature of graffiti art in a number of places. One of the most prominent ones where you and I have both been is in Bogota, Colombia. And one of the amazing things about Bogota is that it is, I, I mean, there are, they estimate that there are 7,500 active street artists in Bogota. And it is definitely, without question, the top three street art cities in South America. Those three, probably Sao Paulo, um, Valparaiso, Chile, and Bogota compete for the top three, but certainly it's in the top three. And one of the things that I appreciate, particularly in a city like that, when you go to the old city in Candelaria um, there and you look at the street art that emanates from that original nature of street art is that it is able to embody, it is a way for for people to express a counter-hegemonic narrative through art. And so it's a lot of, you know, uh, communication and rhetoric and expressing of social and political views from marginalized positions in society that don't necessarily get mainstream representation. So it's, it's, it's a medium to communicate um, oftentimes anti-establishment or counter-hegemonic narratives of some kind. And so that could be relating to the indigenous struggles, relating to women's struggles, relating to various different anti-colonial struggles by communities of color. And in Bogota, it was amazing to me to go around in Candelaria and see oftentimes the connection between different marginalized groups that would collaborate on street art projects. So there was literally like a kind of a punk rock, you know, person, uh, you know, in the same mural with sort of an indigenous or, you know, just different kind of marginalized groups that are not mainstream social groups. So they get, you know, coming together to sort of express their narrative and their experience and their social and political views through a medium that is not sanctioned by the government or is not sanctioned by corporations. Now, what ultimately happens, as you mentioned, is that these street artists are so talented. Like the raw 
talent. I mean, but it's just like any kind of artist, like a rapper or like, you know, somebody who's just like has this incredible raw talent. And eventually, of course, they get hired by a corporation mm-hmm. to do their art, right? And so all of these artists, like sometimes, you know, somebody will commission a mural and be like, that artist is insanely talented. Look at all their graffiti pieces. I want to pay you to do this big mural on the front of my store and, you know, and that kind of stuff. So a lot of people are starting to, to get into that as well. Yeah. Um, a word that stuck out to me that you just mentioned is expression. And I think this type of art as a means of expression is incredibly important. And I think in whatever format the expression's taking, whether it's, you know, sanctioned by corporations or the government or done more sort of in in the dirty roots of, of how graffiti started, maybe, um, there's a place for all of it. And I think that's really special too. And I think you're seeing a lot of like respect with um, street artists and, and graffiti and taggers in like certain communities where they know like what boundaries to push and, and what boundaries not to push. And just the evolution of how all of these different types of art can live in urban environments together is quite interesting. And I think uh, I really put the pieces together on this in Barcelona. So I do a street art tour in every city that offers one. It's like the first thing I like to do outside of finding good coffee and like strong Wi-Fi. Um, And so in Barcelona, my street art tour, two things that were really interesting happened. One is we saw a community garden that had painted murals for um, an incident where there was a death of a member of the community and what had happened there is the the police broke up a brawl and through the the police force trying to stop the brawl someone had had died and the community felt like they were being silenced and so they built this memorial garden and put up street art to talk about this event and to remember the person in the community that passed away and over time other street artists came to that garden and painted similar expressions of crime that had happened around the world and so for me going there, I learned about a few different incidences throughout the world, um, not just in Spain, but also things that had happened in South America that I had no idea about. And it sparked me to educate myself. And so if there had not been a mural and if there had not been graffiti, then I would have just, you know, wandered around Barcelona, maybe had some sangria. But instead, like, I learned really interesting things about humanity that had happened in the past and current events that I had no idea otherwise. And so I think just using art as a format to express, as you mentioned, like injustices or political beliefs and things like that really give an opportunity for people to educate themselves. And then the other quick story is like while we were walking around Barcelona, there, there's a street artist that's getting a lot more attention lately and he's 12 years old, like 12 years old. And that's just so cool that despite your age, you can jump into this field. And our tour guide said, if that street artist keeps it up as a 12 year old, he will transcend into the type of street artist that people are paying big money to have commissioned, sanctioned murals by and earn a living and have this like cool career of expressionism that most I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting the Maverick show I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best US real estate markets from anywhere so these are single family homes 
sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. 12-year-olds don't get told like, oh, you could be a street artist one day. And I just thought that was like really... It's amazing. And in Barcelona, in fact, a lot of these street artists are negotiating, right? Because the the tension is, are you quote unquote selling out or are you being co-opted if a corporation or the government is paying you or even just legally allowing you mm-hmm. and providing your paints to just paint somewhere? Like, is that a sellout thing? And so one of the negotiation dynamics that's going on in Barcelona and other places is like if a business wants to pay you because you're just like an incredible street artist to do the piece on the front of their building. Some of these street artists are saying, yes, I'll do it. I'll take your money and I'll do a piece, but I get to choose what the piece is. Like, you don't get to tell me what to paint. Yeah. Right? And so as long as you have a piece by this artist on your front, like, they're going to control their freedom of expression and paint whatever the heck they want. And that's the negotiation, right? So there, there is really interesting to see how this is evolving Yeah. And as someone who has a little bit of that, don't tell me what to do attitude, you know, cue my high school story again. I like love that. Like, don't tell people what to, what to do. Like let their art speak for themselves. Let them express themselves. Like if people are respecting like humanity, don't hold them back. Yeah. And, (laughs) and, you know, some of the negotiations also, like there was this, you know, I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil last year, which also is contender for top street art city in South America, for sure. Epic. Amazing. And so, but one of the things that happened there was that there was, the police did a sweep and they intentionally targeted and arrested the top street artists in the city and literally threw them in jail. And there was all this outrage, like, you are insane. You're crazy. How could you possibly do this? All this outrage. But what the street artists did is they negotiated from inside prison with the government they negotiated to have what is now known as an open air museum where they would be allowed to have a segment of the city where street artists could have total freedom of expression to do their works in this designated area. And so that was kind of one of the negotiations. So now the government allows this place in northern Sao Paulo. It's incredible. You should go see it if anybody uh, uh, goes to Sao Paulo. But it's a place where street artists can do their work and they're allowed to do it by the government. So that's, again, kind of some of the way that this stuff is negotiated. But that's that's always a very interesting question. It's one of the first ones that I ask when I do a street art tour in the city. You know, what's legal, what's not legal, what's commissioned, what's not commissioned, and, you know, make sure when you're showing us the different pieces, like, I'm interested to know which ones are legally allowed, which ones aren't, so that I can sort of interpret the works in different ways, and I'll go into those questions, you know? Yeah. And now I might have a new place to add to my bucket list. Uh, yeah, Sao Paulo, for sure. Yes, for sure. But it, it is it is amazing, and it's definitely, I think, a, a transformative element, as you mentioned, I think, is the other 
term um, that you use that I think is really significant because there are a lot of communities. Did you go, when you were in Colombia, did you go to Medellin? Did you see Comuna Trece? Yes, I did. And what they've done with street art? It's one of the more incredible stories of street art in my mind and just how art and taking pride in where you live and beautifying it and have a place to express yourself can totally turn around a whole entire community and their livelihood. It it was such a cool story. Yeah, it's amazing. It's This is, a you know, for people that don't know, so there was a community in Medellin, which used to be one of the, uh, it was a community, actually. I mean, one of the things that happened, and depending on which who tells you the story about the community, you'll get different pieces of this narrative. But basically what happened is that the community was accused of harboring um, political rebels and the government, which was a really ruthless authoritarian regime um, at the time, probably about 15 years ago, this was backed by the United States government, in fact, um, and U.S. tax dollars. Um, but what they did is they came in and they just basically just did a massacre of the civilian community there, um, claimed that they were harboring rebels and just mo- were literally shooting civilians from helicopters. It was a horrible massacre. Um, and But what happened was the community when they rebuilt themselves they rebuilt themselves on the pillars of hip-hop culture a centerpiece of which was street art and so the community was able to paint murals of everything ranging from like things that like reminded them of their place where they came from or things that made them happy so you'll see like pictures of animals or pictures of like wilderness stuff and, and paintings like that but then you'll also see like you know uh, again it was founded on the pillars of hip-hop culture and so there's a, a hip-hop community center at the base of the community where they literally teach kids the art forms of breakdancing DJing emceeing and graffiti art starting at the age of five there's a mural of Rakim in the middle of the community you know and and so there's this whole hip hop, you know, component to it as well. And it was basically like the community taking control of their environment and putting the art up on the wall that inspired them and then being able to socialize um, the youth in that community into art forms that would allow them to, uh, you know, have that freedom of expression and, and, you know, take control of their community. And it's just, it's an amazing, inspiring place to go. So if you're ever in Medellin, Comuna Trece is incredible. All right. So um, with that, let me ask you one more sort of macro question about the digital nomad movement. And then I want to move into a little bit about your professional expertise and start talking about people ops. But um, maybe maybe this is even a transitionary question, but how do you see the impact of digital nomadism on personal relationships and communities and society at large in the traditional sense. What is what is transforming here? Oh, there's so many things that are transforming here. Um, so I think really when it comes down to relationships around digital nomads, I've found that you meet a lot of people who are extremely independent and really just satisfied with with life on their own. And there is this like weird stigma and and I haven't explored too much how true it is. I only have initial reactions to it that people that are digital nomads are so comfortable with this independence that two things happen. One is they seek out really transient relationships and they have people that are fun for now and they dive in and out of communities. And the other is that people experience 
bouts of isolation and loneliness as a digital nomad. And now that I've doing I've been doing this for three years and I mentioned, you know, one of the things that I do when I travel is to let myself be open to traveling based off of people I meet. I feel like I've experienced both of these things, but a little bit stuck in between the two. And and what I mean by that, just to elaborate, is I say very openly in my life right now that the most important thing that I could have is deep and meaningful relationships with others. And while, yes, I do mean that in a romantic way, but I also mean that in a friendship way. I also mean that in really connecting and getting to know people that do interesting work that I want to support and like figure out why they're passionate about it. I just, I don't want to know what you do in the last country you went to and like what country you're going to next. Like the, the superficial conversations that you tend to like repeat as a digital nomad because they're icebreakers. Um, they're interesting. I love learning that about people, but I like crave this like deeper, more intense conversation. And so what I think's really cool about the digital nomad life also with means of technology is that you can open yourself up to really experience things with lots of different people and flow in and out of periods of isolation and loneliness and then seek out not just in-person relationships, but these virtual relationships that are being built over time. And, you know, transitioning this into people operations, it's one of the things I think about more deeply at a professional level, not just a a personal level, in terms of if you know, I am working for a company that has people as far as California to Uruguay, um, France and Japan. Like, how are those people actually getting to know each other and building a level of trust because they're not seeing each other in person? And the basic dynamics of relationship building is true, whether it's personal, platonic, family, romantic, professional. You need to be Again, this is a word I'm going to use a lot in this podcast. I'm going to have to like remove it from my vocabulary, but like intentional. You really have to be intentional about how you're communicating, why you're communicating, and what you're communicating to build relationships and seek out connection proactively if if you're going to succeed in being a digital nomad. Maybe at this point you could talk about the distinction between digital nomadism and remote work because I think those two things are increasingly conflated and maybe you could sort of disaggregate them and talk about what the differences are. Yeah, I'm really glad you pointed that out because actually everything I just said is true for remote workers as well and I will now explain the difference in which um, I think people do confuse, oh, you work remotely with, oh, you're traveling the world or have a laptop on the beach or like kicking it in Thailand, which I've never been to, by the way. Um, But remote work is a lot more than that. It's really just about, again, this idea of having control and having flexibility about approaching work in an environment that you are happiest holistically in your life in a way where you can work when you're most productive and utilize technology to help you succeed. And so when I think about remote work, I think about it really as this umbrella to being anybody who creates their their career or their means of financial support in a way that relies on technology but gives them the freedom to do it anywhere 
And then a small subset of that is digital nomadism, which, yes, is, you know, people that are traveling the world and working and, and moving around to different countries. But even within that, I think there's lots of variations of that. And I've lived two variations so far, which is where I did extended periods of time outside the U.S. and then extended periods of time in the U.S. and found balance. And now I travel full times to, you know, stay in places one to three months at a time. But I'm pretty like when I think about like my professional life, I'm pretty unique. So I work for DuckDuckGo. There's 55 ish people um, right now that work there. I'm the only digital nomad. And everybody else lives these incredibly fulfilling lives that are very different from each other, but aren't living out of suitcases and going on safaris on their weekend trips. They're people that didn't want to live and deal with commutes and prices of cost of living in San Francisco in like the hustle of New York City. They just wanted to like be with their families in a town close to their friends, but still challenge themselves in a field that's really competitive, such as software development and and live just like a better life for their interests. And so we have people like that that live in small towns in the US. We have someone who lives in Saskatchewan in Canada. Like it, it allows people to really create the perfect life for themselves. Yeah, I think that's important. And a lot of times when people ask me about things or stuff that I do, I explain that I'm not trying to tell people that everyone should do what I do, right? But I do have the position, and what I explain to people is that I think location independence is inherently valuable because it empowers you and gives you the choice, right? Like people oftentimes ask me like, oh, is your travel pace like too fast? Like, are you ever going to quote unquote settle down? Or what if you like have kids or if you do this, if you do that? I was like, listen, for me, it's not about, you know, any of the specifics of the lifestyle elements that I'm choosing at the moment. It's about the freedom to choose them. And so next year, I might choose something different. I might choose to travel slower or travel faster. Or if I want to stay at one place for an entire year or five years or whatever, I have the choice to do all of those things. And so it's the feeling of, for me, of the empowerment of having the choice to choose your location. You can move wherever you want. If I want to go and spend a month or two months with my family for the holidays, I can do that. And I have no restrictions upon me. And so I think it's really about removing geographic restrictions, creating the location dependence for yourself to make the choice. And then each person can make a different choice that suits them. And those choices may change at various phases of their life. Yeah. And I think too, not just like at a personal level and not just at like a community level, but also at a society level, remote work's really important because what it's doing is it's allowing people to have more freedom and flexibility to get things done that impact how governments are spending money to take care of their society. And so if you think about things like women's health, um, if you don't have the freedom and flexibility to work remotely and maybe you have a job or you're working two jobs to support a family to find time to take a day off and potentially lose pay to go see a doctor go fill prescriptions to like take control over 
your health as a female is a challenge that a lot of people have in certain environments. Whereas if they have remote work and flexibility, they can schedule those appointments, not just during the, you know, like not just during the hours of nine to five when they're supposed to be at work, they could go at 4 p.m. And that means they're working till 8 p.m. And it just allows them more access to things. And I think that's incredibly important. Like we've created this rigid society where literally everything gets done between the hours of nine to five. Like if you need to go to a bank, you probably have to do it during your lunch break because after work, the bank's closed. Like if you need to go grocery shopping or pick up dry cleaning, like, you know, everybody in a lot of places is doing that at the exact same time. And then like that has wear and tear on like public transportation and how you're thinking about like costs of fuel and like the bus lines and the streets and the people you're working to do those jobs. Like literally remote work has potential to change every decision we make in a society. Yeah, totally agreed. So one of the things that I think is interesting about you and that I want to ask about you is that a lot of people have the impression that digital nomads or perhaps even remote workers in general are people that, you know, maybe are computer programmers and just get assigned tasks that they have to go do and then submit or, you know, they're freelancers that do maybe social media marketing and they can do it on their own time and they have, you know, a couple of clients and they're sort of a freelancer. Or I think there are sort of stereotypes of, of the sorts of job categories that can be digital nomads, that can be digital nomad conducive, right? You are a full-time salaried W-2 employee and you are also a senior level leadership position at a 55 plus person company. And you execute your responsibilities throughout all different time zones. You and I have been in Asia together, as we mentioned, in Vietnam. You and I are now in Africa together in Kenya. You are going to Europe next week. As you mentioned, you'll be in the United States later on. Can you talk a little bit about your responsibilities at DuckDuckGo and how you execute a full-time senior level position from these different time zones and in the digital nomad lifestyle. Yeah, definitely. I think the also interesting thing is when I tell people I work in people operations and if they don't know what people operations is, I tell them I work in HR. That's when people really get confused that I can do it remotely because the basis of my job is interacting with other humans. And so how do you really do that behind a computer screen? I think it's quite common for people, again, like developers, people imagine, you know, dark room, music blaring, coding. And and for me, the type of responsibilities I take on is quite different. And so overarching, I think really deeply and recommend and propose ways for our company to make decisions that will make the employee experience better for everybody that we employ. And so what that actually means day to day is that I'm thinking through the strategy and the decisions and the types of operational projects we're doing. And I think through how that impacts communication, how that impacts people's abilities to learn and grow professionally, what that impact is for culture, and are people actually being effective and efficient in their jobs. Um, Projects that I've worked on in the past is you know, hiring strategy and helping hiring managers learn how to hire people remotely and think through what the needs are, thinking through um, professional feedback and how we handle promotions when you can't see 
physically if somebody's working, you know, or not working and, you know, how do you evaluate someone else's success and give them useful feedback and determine if they're ready for new responsibilities if you're not interacting with them face to face and also thinking through. And one of the things I love about people operations right now in this space is I studied organizational behavior in an academic setting. And all of the case studies when I was in university had examples of companies that were together in one office building. And so a lot of solutions that you think through when you think of things like conflict resolution or team building, trust building, brainstorming, all of the best practices that existed over the past 10 years resulted in in-person work. So, you know, brainstorming with post-it notes up on the board, conflict resolution by going out and having a coffee and, you know, talking through your issues with someone. In order to do those things remotely, like we're reinventing what best practices are. And so thinking through if someone has a conflict at work or there's a misunderstanding or a miscommunication, how do they sync up, especially if there's a seven or eight hour time difference between that miscommunication happening? Um, and so I think those things are just really interesting and companies such as DuckDuckGo and other companies that are remote first or remote only are changing the way that we approach these really human problems in business. Okay. So can you speak to some of the solutions that you have developed for these issues that you've posed? Yes. Um, so I'll start with hiring because that seems to be one that's like really quite interesting for people. And I think uh, a lot of entrepreneurs eventually are going to hire people, hopefully, um, if their company's doing well and growing out their team. And I think the decisions you need to make and the approach you take to hiring when you're dealing in a remote environment is quite different. And so I think advice that I would have in terms of hiring specifically and how you do that remotely is if few things. One is if you're, you know, a a company of one or two, it's just you and a co-founder starting to think through like what your organizational structure is going to be and why is the forefront to hiring. So are you going to hire remotely? And some of the benefits of that is access to talent, regardless of a geographical area, getting the best people for the job and the role um, without the limitation of them coming into an office or them only being able to work certain hours is a great corporate benefit. Um, and, you know, I'm going to speak from like the business standpoint right now because I've, I think everyone knows a little bit about personally why this is so important to me. But that access to talent, the flexibility around time zones and when you're working on projects is incredibly important for a company. The downsides for some companies is remote work is really challenging and to build out a remote company takes a lot of proactive thought. And so when you're thinking through what you want your company culture and environment to look like, if you're going to hire people that excel in spontaneous conversations or in-person brainstorms, people that really get motivated by the social aspects of work, then creating a, a remote environment might not be right for you. But if you think that having the best talent out there and putting in the effort to let people live their lives in a remote way is important, the next step I would recommend is thinking really deeply about the skill set, the behaviors, and the type of responsibilities that people need to have in order to do a job successfully and craft your entire 
hiring process around those things. And so it becomes less so, and and I hate this, there used to be a thing that people talked about when they talk about hiring that's like, would you want to go and have a beer with this person? Well, that makes a terrible coworker. I want to have a beer with lots of people, but I don't trust them if I'm not going to check in with them between the hours of nine to five, that they're going to put in the effort to like do kick-ass work. And I want to work with people that are going to push me to be like the most intelligent person that I can be, the most hardworking person I can be, and really feel passionate about the product that we're creating. And so I don't necessarily have to have similar interests as those people, but I do need to be interested in them and want to build a trusting relationship with them. And so what I recommend with remote hiring is give people a chance to let their behaviors speak for themselves. And so what we do at DuckDuckGo very tactically is we pay people to go through our interview process because we know it's an investment. We want to see what their work can do and let the work speak for themselves, not the quality of their interviewing or how charismatic they are on a video call. And so through these paid projects, it does two things that I think is really important for remote work to work. One is it lets us make a very objective decision on if that person can accomplish work without a manager checking in with them like over their shoulder on the computer. Like, Can we just give them an assignment and trust that they'll do it or have enough self-awareness that if they can't do it, seek out help. And the second thing is, and I think this is, you know, also like equally, if not more important, is hiring should always be a two-way decision. Like you're going to invest in an employee and employee is going to invest in you as a company. And so by giving people real projects to work on and paying them for their effort, it gives the candidate more control to decide this is work that's really inspiring to me. I love these projects. These challenges are like interesting and I'm going to learn and I'm going to be really motivated to join this company and help them succeed. So it's kind of like if I, I, I make this example sometimes, if you're interviewing for a company and you go into their office, before I worked remotely, the number one piece of advice I'd give someone looking for a job is like when you walk into the office, are people smiling at their computers? Are people like talking to each other in the kitchen? If you go into the bathroom and like sit in a bathroom stall, like are you going to hear people gossip and complain about their manager or about work that's going on? Or are people excited? You can't do that in a remote environment. Like we do our calls on Zoom and it's a video call. But what we can do is give people an opportunity to join team meetings and to like come and interact with people before a hiring decision is made. And so that's the equivalent of, you know, sitting in the bathroom stall is come and participate in our company and we'll pay you for your time. And then at the end of the day, we'll both make a decision on if this is a good fit. Awesome. That's really good advice. Um, So let me just ask you the distinction. I know you've worked with early stage startups and I know you've worked with large corporations with 200 plus people. Um, DuckDuckGo, your current uh, employer is kind of in the middle there. Um, But how should companies, business founders, entrepreneurs, or even executives think about people operations at those different stages? Like what should they get? Because I feel like HR and people operations are some of the most overlooked aspects of a business. 
Yeah. And I really, I, I really feel like they are. I really appreciate you saying that. It like makes me feel good. I'm like sitting up more straight <laughs> in my chair now. Um, so uh, first of all, I'd also like to distinguish like HR responsibilities from people operations responsibilities. It's quite normal for a company, you know, under a hundred people to outsource their HR tasks in terms of payroll benefit administration, things of that nature. And I think that's totally valid. Um, if there's companies that can do administrative tasks for you, you and free up your time to think more strategically, that could be a really good option for you as a company. Um, But one of the things that I think is important in terms of people operations that's quite different than administering health benefits, for example, is again, thinking through how are operational decisions going to impact the people and the culture at work. And I think that's something that should be thought about from day one of the organization. As As soon as you're not um, a solo, you know, person leading your own charge, any decision you make is going to impact the livelihood, the motivation and the growth of another person and investing in that person properly will help your bottom line as a business. And so I think as soon as you can start, maybe it's not a full-time people operations person on staff. Like I'm, you know, lucky enough to have right now, maybe it's just seeking out communities where these, these people are consulting and getting advice, um, to help shape everything that you do in terms of how are we going to handle when conflict arises? How are we going to handle people that outgrow their role and start getting demotivated by routine tasks that used to be challenging and no longer are? Um, what type of company do we want to be in terms of culture, which is a buzzword, but in terms, what I really mean there is how are decisions getting made? Are decisions always going to be collaborative decisions? Do you need buy-in from certain stakeholders? How do those stakeholders know how to make decisions? If they don't know, how do we teach them? All of those questions are types of things that having a people operations person could help answer, at least from the perspective of what is this impact going to be on Matt, for example, as an employee of this company. Because I think what happens oftentimes is you make the business decision first and you don't think about how the impact on the person. So at the very least, having a designated person to play devil's advocate and ask the questions about what does this mean for me? What type of change is this going to be and why? How is this impacting our culture? What types of things do we want to infuse in our culture from the get-go and being really proactive about it will help you more seamlessly grow from one to five people to 50 people to hundreds to thousands of people. Can you talk a little more specifically about company culture? You mentioned it's sort of a buzzword. I think it is um, as well. But can you talk about what is company culture? How important is it? And how should a business founder or executive be intentional about architecting one. Yeah. Um, so I almost wish I could change the term company culture to expectation, like expectation setting. That's, that's really all it is to, to simplify things. I think when you think through company culture, it's when somebody's joining this community and a company is a community, how are people expected to behave? What are the norms? What is going to be appropriate and not appropriate? Um, and how do you create that legacy so it's happening without control? And so really thinking through examples of that, um, one thing 
that while, you know, I think company culture is a buzzword, another thing that people who do it well really get right is thinking through what their company values are and like what behaviors they're going to reward from independent contributors and leaders in the organization. I think if you can figure that out and do it through buy-in of other people in the organization and get diverse perspectives on that, it's something that you can really ingrain as a way to make decisions. And so for DuckDuckGo, um, we have a few company values. The ones that I really appreciate as a remote worker is validate direction and build trust um, and question assumptions. And so everything we do kind of goes back to like, if someone's going to be successful in this environment, they need to at least be able to do those three things. And so just to break them down really quickly. Building trust, one, that's like extremely difficult to do in a remote environment. Like it's really easy um, when you're going through something, whether it's personal or professional, to like turn off your computer and escape um, and like not be present in your work community. And so I think you really need to learn about your the people you're working with in a way that will help you build trust faster. And so things that we do at, at DuckDuckGo, um, one is every new person coming in has like three questions that they get asked about just sort of like, who are you? Like, give us like the basics about you and give us like a few things that you're interested in or ideas you have for DuckDuckGo as conversation starters. So people can feel free to like reach out and make you feel more welcome. Um, we do neighbors calls, which is when on a weekly basis, you get paired up with like three or four people that you usually don't work with. So it's like never your manager or it's usually not someone on your same functional team. And it's just an opportunity to like get to know each other. And sometimes people talk about personal things. Sometimes they talk about cool projects they're working on. It's the equivalent of like a company happy hour or like a water cooler chat. But because it's remote, like you have the videos on, you have to be there, you have to be present and people start to really get past the awkwardness and dive into like really meaningful things right away because that's the point of them joining the call. Um, so we do things like that to build trust in the organization. We also have something I love every Thursday, our CEO posts like a question and sometimes it's serious and sometimes it's silly and it's just like a way to get to know each other in the company. And you'll see like some threads, like they get posted on Thursdays. Some threads are still going on like Mondays and people now like upload pictures. Um, and it's like things from like, what does your desk look like to like, what's your normal lunch routine to if you could change one thing about our product, what would you change and why? So like runs the gamut of getting to know each other at personal and professional level. And I think all of those things we've done in a really intentional way and have spaced them out on a cadence where they're different but repeatable in order to build the trust. Um, the other two I mentioned, question assumptions. I think this is a, another really important one because when you're working remotely, you have less opportunity to bounce things off someone else. Um in an organic way, like you either have to set up a meeting to brainstorm and you have to have enough self-awareness that you need a brainstorm meeting or you're going to like finish something and it's not going to be that great and like people are going to come and like give you feedback. So like the the value of question and assumptions is really cool because it just lets people pop into anything that interests them in the entire company and like ask questions about what's going on and why. And we approach it from something called the most respectful interpretation because sometimes questions, especially when you're dealing with remote work and it's like written down and you're not getting the tone and the intonation and like the facial expressions and like the genuine curiosity that you see 
in people um, when it's just like, you know, everyone I'm sure can probably relate to like that text message that really pissed them off. And they were like, why did I get this text message? And like the same thing can happen in business where you're like, why am I getting this email? But it's usually like people are busy and people are trying to finish up their work and go, you know, do cool things and spend time with their family, spend time with their friends that they're just, you know, responding to things. And so having a place where you think through what did this person mean And like, what's the most respectful way that I can interpret it? Not this person's out to get me can make question asking in business really fruitful because you're, you're, you know, tackling the most challenging business problems, not like personal relationships. And so I think that one's like, again, like a core value of the company. And then the third validating direction, especially when you're working remotely, you're kind of, you know, on your own island with your computer getting work done, if you don't know it's the right decision and why, you can easily go down a rabbit hole and waste time working on the wrong thing. And so I think when we think through company culture, like already you've seen like by knowing what your values are, you can then initiate certain activities that help you foster those values and make sure they're easy to obtain. And then going back to hiring, you can actually objectively test for those values. So like when we give projects to people, we want to see not only what are you going to do, but explain to us why you're doing it. That's validating direction. We're going to give people instructions and we're going to trust that if they need help or if they have questions, that they're going to come back to us. We don't enforce any sort of like, you know, come and show us your work. It's like, you're an adult, get things done. We're going to trust you. If you say you're going to get it to us by Tuesday, you should get it to us by Tuesday. If you say you're going to get it to us by Thursday, get it to us by Thursday. So it's all about expectation setting. Um, and, And by reframing culture into like values and activities, it makes it a lot more tangible for decision makers and for leaders in an organization. And can you talk a little bit about the gender diversity initiatives and the importance of female empowerment in the workspace? Yes. Um, So this has been like a hot topic, I think, ever since I started to really pay attention to hiring. Um, I think a lot of companies in the tech world, especially in, in the United States, are really struggling to figure out why and how to make both work environments better for both genders. Um, but also to like attract and, you know, promote and retain females in their workspace. And it's something that's been getting, I think, international attention. And so what was really like cool and interesting for me is when I first started working at DuckDuckGo, I was the third female that joins the company. I was the first person in any sort of leadership role. And the first thing that I heard um, from them that like fortunately did not have to come to me is like, we're about to grow a lot and we don't want to fall in this trap of like not making this an inclusive place to work because everybody searches for things on the internet. So we need the opinion of everybody in order to make this product as best as it can be. And so it's, you know, in that lens, I I was looking at gender diversity, but it also comes down to like all types of diversity in terms of like, if your product isn't reflective of who your customer base is, like how can you make the best product for them? And then also I just think it makes it like a more interesting and fun place to work when you have different perspectives and you can learn from people that are quite different. And so going back to the gender diversity thing, like it was really important for me to do a few things. Like one, assess like 
what does this work environment look like for women? And I oftentimes found myself in this position where if something happened that was interesting to me, I had to stop and I had to be like, okay, is this interesting to me because I'm Allie and as a human, I have strengths and weaknesses. Is this interesting to me because potentially this is an unconscious bias and and it's something, you know, that women are experiencing, but not men? Or is this something that everybody's experiencing, but we're just not talking about it enough? And like, if we can bond over our struggles, again, like building trust and building relationships in a remote work environment, like it's good to bond over your success, but also your challenges. And so I I went through a period of time where I was like constantly taking inventory on things and checking in and making recommendations and thinking through what does it look like to work here from all types of diversity and then really um, promote and like talk about the the benefits of remote work, especially for women in the workplace. And so I think some of the things that don't get talked enough about, not just at DuckDuckGo, this exists at DuckDuckGo, but just generally with remote work is if you have the freedom and flexibility to earn a living in a way that can, you know, bend to your lifestyle. It means that people who potentially are single mothers who before had to choose between spending time raising their children, which like, by the way, I think is the most incredibly important job in the world because you're impacting like the future of humans in the world. Agreed. Um, Like that for me is just such an incredible task to, to have to like live up to and make sure that you're like inspiring and creating respectful humans with emotional intelligence that are curious and excited about the world that we're living in and like going to make positive change. Like that's like a whole nother podcast, but like, how do you balance that with going into an office and like earning a living with chores and household duties, et cetera, et cetera. Remote work means that like you can balance out picking your kids up from school, going to soccer games, cooking dinner, and going to conference calls throughout a 24-hour period of time, not an eight-hour period between the hours of nine to five. And so I think once I really tapped into like the benefits of remote work and how much DuckDuckGo supports those benefits, it really opens the door for us to have conversations with more women about like what this means for them. And I'm, you know, I'm using these benefits right now as someone who's just like traveling the world and doing all these really cool experiences. But I see a future for myself where I'm also, you know, raising kids and working remotely and like baking cookies for bake sale in between like sending out contracts to hire really awesome people. So I just think like the evolution of remote work and putting in things in place to like help support that's really important. So other cool things that we do um, that I just want to mention because they make me super happy and really proud is we pay everybody at the level of the company the same thing regardless of if they're male or female regardless of if they have a degree or don't have a group degree regardless if they're living in Vietnam or the United States if they're performing a job that is giving the company a productive investment we're going to pay them for the work that they're doing and all that information is made transparent before you even accept a job so you can know before your first interview this role pays this much and this is what we expect of you in terms of like your ability to create an output so there's no need for negotiation and some of the unconscious bias that goes with negotiation so I you know I'm really proud to be able to work for a company that has such a transparent pay scale and that existed before 
you know, I even started, which I love. And the other really cool project that I was able to work on over the past, you know, two and a half, almost three years at DuckDuckGo was creating a parental leave policy that supports both men and women that are bringing new family members into their lives, whether it be via adoption or biologically, and having to research and adjust that policy based off of the needs of people in different countries was it like also really incredible to be able to think of as a company, what do we want to do for our people and not based off of what certain governments dictate. And obviously there are certain countries that do it more uh, like liberal than us and certain countries that don't do anything. And so really taking uh, tabs on what makes sense for us and why, and how do we create a supportive environment and why are like, the types of work I do to not only inspire the company from a gender diversity standpoint, but just in general. Awesome. So you mentioned earlier that you have done presentations on productivity and time management and that kind of stuff. So I want to ask you in general, yes, and also specifically as you travel the world and find yourself in amazing places that have incredible street art and beautiful hikes and all sorts of awesome stuff to do and cool people to hang out with that you're surrounding yourself with intentionally and so forth, how do you create and optimize your productivity, your output, and manage and structure your time effectively? I'll start pretty broad and then I'll go into some unique details that I think I've really found to what works for me. Uh, So when I present on productivity, the theory that I like to use the best is something that Franklin Covey came out with, which is the big rocks theory. And basically people can find this on YouTube, but the way that it goes is most people start their day. And if your day is a glass jar or our bottle of wine that we're drinking here, it's finite. You can only put so much wine into this wine bottle. Um, And so when people think about structuring their day, I think the first thing you need to think about is like, I only have a limited amount of hours in a day, especially if you're one, not like me, because I sleep like four hours a night, but you get a proper eight, nine hours of sleep. So that's like not even a full 24 hours that you're trying to cram all this personal and professional stuff into. And so one, you have to realize that, you know, time is finite your resources to accomplish things in any given day or week are finite. So one is like, have self-forgiveness. I think, first of all, people are really hard on themselves if they don't get everything done when they say that they're going to get it done. And knowing when you should be hard on yourself and like, you know, create some pressure and, and when you just need to like let it go and like take care of your mental and physical health. And so when what Franklin Covey does is it, it, it has this analogy of big rocks where there's big rocks, there's stones, there's pebbles and there's sand. And they represent different things that have a certain level of urgency and importance throughout someone's work day, work week, work month, etc. Uh, what most people do is like they put the sand in the bottle first. They do like all those easy tasks. Like I think people could probably relate to like waking up in the morning, having a cup of coffee and like responding to a billion emails. Then all of a sudden it's noon. And what did you do today? Um, that's the wrong approach from a productivity standpoint. I mean, if it works for you and you're getting everything done and you don't want to like cry at night, like good for you. I want to meet you. Um, but the the better approach that Franklin Covey teaches is like figure out what is the big rocks? Like what are those super meaningful things in your life from a professional and a personal standpoint that are both important and urgent 
and create space in a mindful way to get those things done first. And tactically, what people do is they put blockers on their calendar to accomplish the the big rocks. Um, they do those things first, or they do those things when they know they're most productive, which creates a layer of you know self awareness that needs to happen. And then once those things are accomplished, once you figured out your big big rocks, make room for the stones, the pebble, and the sand. And so I think by having that approach and really prioritizing, and what I love about this is prioritizing holistically all of the things you need to do in your life, you can really see how much you can accomplish and set expectations appropriately. And when you think about it, everything that you do in life is either a thought, a conversation, or an action, um, which I think is, is a really cool way to think about time management. And most people only manage their time based off of actions, sometimes conversations if there's a meeting involved, but to create also intentional space for you to think lets you be more creative and can speed up the tactical process of accomplishing work faster. And so I think that's another piece of advice I have for people is think about when you're going to think. Some people do that in like the shower. Um, Some people do that on the treadmill. Some people do that while looking at awesome street art, but you need to carve out that time for yourself to be creative and be innovative. Personally, what that means for me, um, like my my favorite tactic, I'm just going to share one because it's like, I think maybe the most unique and, and is only allowed because of my remote work and digital nomad life. But I am one of those people that I... I read all these articles about how routine is good for you. I hate routine. I like do not want routine in my life. I want every day to be exciting and different. I want to be inspired by my surroundings. And so one thing that I do is I think about what I want to accomplish in a very specific place. And I I will, for example, say I am going to go to this particular coffee shop that's around the block. And while I'm there, I'm going to write a proposal based off of the employee engagement results that I got in. Once I finish that task and finish my cup of coffee, hopefully at the same time, if I'm like really killing it with time management, then I'll be like, okay, cool. I'm going to leave this place now. And the time it takes me for, for me to go from that place to the next place, whether it's walking or going for a bike ride to get to the next place, you know, some in some cities, taking an Uber allows me time to context switch, which I think is a really challenging for uh skill for people in business is like quickly switching from one activity to the next. And what I love when I'm in cities where I'm walking or biking distance from another place is it also gives me this like burst of physical activity that kind of gives me stress reduction and adrenaline and like makes me feel like I'm out doing something fun. And then when I get to my new location, I can sit down and I can process like what happened over the past 20 minutes where I got to take a lovely break. And I can say, okay, now when I'm in this position in like this location, I'm going to respond to all of my emails. And so I very much structure my day based off of activities I can accomplish in a certain place and how many times I can context switch to go to a new place to be re-inspired. I think that is an awesome piece of advice. You and I actually executed that today uh, as we went to a coffee shop and we just jammed for like a two-hour power work session. And then we moved locations and we went from a coffee shop to the co-working space and then we jammed for another three to four-hour work session. And now we're doing this podcast interview in yet a different 
specific location, right? So I think that is a really awesome piece of advice because the other thing it does is it forces you to create goals within specific time frames. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I, I'm going to spend two hours here and I'm going to try to jam and just crush all this stuff in two hours and that's the limit I'm going to give myself. And it kind of forces you to work in blocks as opposed to just like sitting somewhere and be like, I have 14 hours to like do all this stuff. And then, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it works well. And it gives you permission to take a break and everybody needs a break in life. Like I don't care who you are, how intelligent you are, how hardworking you are. Everybody needs time to decompress from work and like reset what they're thinking about. And like for me, I also like sometimes I'm like a little kid and everything has to be a fun game for me. And so like one thing that I've done also to create awareness around time management strategies is if if I go to a coffee shop and I say, okay, I'm going to be at this coffee shop for two hours because I want to accomplish this task. If two hours goes by and I'm not done with the task, then I failed at my game in terms of like how I'm planning and structuring out my day. And it makes me realize, is there a reason why you procrastinated on this? Do you not have the right skills to accomplish this in two hours? Like, do you need to seek help? Like it, it, gives you a chance to also create more self-awareness around your time management and your abilities. Right. Right. Absolutely. So last question here, and then I want to move on to the lightning round. Before we do that though, um, I want you to, I want to ask your personal strategies for stress management, stress reduction, that kind of stuff for people that work in high intensity environments. It's a basically, uh, you know, a given that there's going to be a high level of stress, which may vary over time, but it's definitely going to be there. So as a, as someone that works in intense environments for sure, what have been your personal strategies for managing or reducing stress in your life? So this is a question I'm actually a little nervous to answer. Um, I think that while I manage stress enough to be successful in my profession and travel the world, stress management is a topic that definitely impacts me a lot. I tend to run a little bit more anxious and a little bit more stressed out on a, on a general basis. I, I think I've been joking with you, Matt, about this like eye twitch that I've developed, which like maybe is from lack of sleep and maybe is from stress. So it's definitely something that like I'm human and I deal with stress on a daily basis and like I'm trying to improve upon it. Um, so if anybody has better suggestions than the things I already do, I want to hear from them as well. Um, but I'll say I'll say a few things that come to mind. One is really figuring out ways where you can make yourself feel good. And whether that's like emotionally tuning out to like a bad reality TV show, which is one thing I do to to reduce stress, or if it's going to a yoga class or going to a gym, regardless of what city you're in, um, or if it's, you know, taking those quick 10, 20 minute breaks in between location, knowing what's going to quickly bring you back to your equilibrium as a human is really important to me. For me, I think it, it's a few things. It's definitely like some sort of physical activity. Every weekend, I like to get out into nature and hike. And that's like my way to reduce stress. Like if I'm spending a whole weekend in a city, I better be seeing awesome street art because otherwise I'm going to be like a stressed out human being because I just need to reconnect with like green space and fresh air and and do something physically challenging um, throughout the week if I can do yoga or work out 
that is really important to me and helps helps ground me. And then while traveling stress reduction that I do is like trying to make my life as normal as possible, not necessarily from a routine standpoint, but I love cooking. I love like having people over for dinner. When I do that, it makes me feel good. And like the, the dancing around in the kitchen and chopping vegetables like is something that like I'm smiling right now thinking about like throwing a dinner party somewhere in the world. Let me know where you want me to go. Um, like that's a stress reduction for me. And so I think finding the ways where you're making yourself happy and like creating time to make yourself happy is really important. Awesome. Allie G, are you ready for the lightning round? Lightning round. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. The lightning round. All right. What is the top book that you would recommend that has greatly impacted your life? The Giver. By? Lewis Lowry. Okay. What is the top app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you would recommend? Asana. Okay. What is your favorite podcast or blog that you're reading or listening to right now? Um, I don't know if this counts as a blog, but I read a lot when I'm traveling uh, a website called The Culture Trip, and it has a lot of inspiring lists of places to go and neighborhoods to check out and is a great way for like a quick introduction to a city. Awesome. What is your top three favorite travel destinations that you've ever been to? that you would most love to go back to and recommend that other people definitely check out. I'm glad you gave me three because I hate having favorites. Give me your three. Um, so my three would be Cape Town, Argentina, and Lisbon. Now you gave two cities and you gave an entire country. Yes, okay. it had to be that way. Fair enough. Because the country of Argentina is is enormous. It's the eighth largest country in the world and there are a number of amazing things to do in it. So I mean, you have fair. hiking and nature and camping in the Patagonia. You have wine in Mendoza and you have street art and like awesome urban lifestyles in Buenos Aires. And you have all of those three things in Cape Town. And Lisbon, so like Argentina needed the whole country. Fair enough, and it has the Iguazu waterfalls in the north <laughs> on the border, beautiful. which are insane. Yeah, yeah, no, totally agreed with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was skiing in Bariloche last year in the Andes Mountains, which was just totally bonkers. So it's it's it is an amazing country indeed. I've lived there for about four months, so totally agree with that. Okay, what are your top bucket list destinations that you've never been to that you most want to go? Top of your list. Top of my top list. Top three. Top three. Okay, good. I have four. Can I give four? You can give four. Okay. I give you special permission to give four. Um, so Iceland is top, top, top number one. Um, Morocco, Bolivia, and Turkey. Good picks. Those are all very high on my recommendation list. Good well, for you. I'll be hitting you up Hit for the up best places when you to go. On those. Yeah, I did. Bolivia is like my top recommendation. I mean, South American sort of trips. I mean, it was just epic when we went there and I just did uh, Morocco. I was just there for a month this year. And uh, Istanbul is one of my favorite cities in the whole world. So amazing picks. All right. Last question. Now you have Michigan roots. I do have Michigan roots. My business partner, Valerie, is from Michigan, so I would be remiss if I didn't close out with the final lightning round question and ask you, what is your favorite Michigan-based sports team? The Red Wings. Boom! The Detroit Red Wings represent. All right. (laughs) 
Good answer. Awesome. Allie, thank you so much for being here. Let me ask you how people can find you. Maybe say a little bit about DuckDuckGo, about what you guys do, what your value proposition is, um, how people can use the services of DuckDuckGo. And then also for you personally, how can people follow you on social media and see your travel adventures and all that? Okay. Awesome. Um, so DuckDuckGo is a online privacy tool with its roots as a search engine. And we don't collect store, transfer, sell any data about what you're looking for online. And so we truly believe that privacy is a right and you can get information that is objective while staying anonymous. Um, We've recently expanded our offering so we're not just a search engine anymore. We also have a mobile app and an extension, which is a tracker blocker. So when you leave the ecosystem of search and are perusing the web, you know who is collecting information on you and what they're collecting. Um, And we're also starting to think through really privacy and education and people not, you know, really understanding the benefits of why you don't want everyone to know everything about you on the web. And so how can people use those services? Um, So you can make DuckDuckGo your default search engine in any browser by going to DuckDuckGo.com and following the instructions there and also downloading our mobile app both on Android and iOS by searching for DuckDuckGo. Awesome. And then if people want to follow you personally on social media to see your epic travel adventures and I can affirm that you are an amazing person to follow on social media because you do epic stuff. How do they find you? Yeah. um, So I keep my Instagram page pretty active with things that are happening in my travel life and you can find me there on Scene Green which is S-E-E-I-N-G R-E-E-N-E so one G, an extra E at the end. Gotta keep people on their toes, but it's C and Green on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook, Allie Green. There's a picture of me with some awesome street art is my profile currently because of course. Uh, so you can hit me up there as well. Amazing. Allie Green, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad.